you will, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, just after Psalms and Proverbs. We begin this morning what will be several weeks walking through the book of Ecclesiastes together. This morning we will be looking at chapter 1, all 18 verses. The title of this morning's sermon is Vanity of Vanities. Our key words for our worshipers in training are vanity, Solomon, and life. Now for centuries... Mankind has been asking the question, what's the point? What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? What am I to do? And if you read literature through the centuries, if you listen to music or look at drama or poetry, you will see there have been many, many answers to this question. Let me give you just a few The philosopher Plato said that the meaning of life was to attain the highest form of knowledge, which is the idea of good. Whatever good is, to be able to attain a knowledge of that is the purpose of life. Aristotle, who was a student of Plato, altered that a bit and said the highest good is its own goal, which is happiness and well-being. And so the purpose of life is to obtain happiness. There were the cynics who believed that living a life of virtue that agrees with nature is the purpose of life. So simply you are to live according to nature. And if you do that, none will suffer and all will be well with us. So we become one with all that is around us. There is a philosophy called Cyreniacism, which was essentially a hedonistic position, that life is about instant gratification. The consequences of that do not matter. We'll deal with it when it comes. But life's meaning is that the here and now is full of self-gratification. Then there were the nihilists. Nihilism. The belief that nothing is of value whatsoever. And so to live is to have dignity in the face of absurdity. That's an absurd claim. Pragmatism. Life's meaning is simply found in my experiences. So whatever I set myself to do, there I find the meaning of life, no matter what it is. Existentialism. Everyone simply creates their own meaning in life. What life means to me is just as important as what life means to you as long as we're all pursuing those paths. Popular today, secular humanism. Man is able and responsible to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good of humanity. So while we have no foundation for what good actually is, we're all to aspire to it in order to do good unto others. 
And then, of course, there is the common uh, and more uh, current philosophy of postmodernism. That the meaning of life, listen carefully, the meaning of life is to question those who claim to know the meaning of life. And so anyone who claims to know what life means and life is about and life is for, we're to question them, and my purpose is to question them to find the meaning. Sounds reasonable, right? And so you add to that, take those philosophies and apply them, and you have a whole host of various ideas and what that looks like. So what is it like? What does life actually consist of? How does it get played out? Well, a brief survey of our modern philosophers, which we find in music and poetry, will help us with that. Here's one some of you will know. He wakes up in the morning, does his teeth, bite to eat, and he's rolling. Never changes a thing. The week ends, the week begins. When all the little ants are marching, red and black antennas waving, we all do it the same. We all do it the same way. Or this one for some of the older crowd. I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes with curiosity. Dust in the wind, all they are is dust in the wind. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. Now, don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. So other than my wife having to hear me sing those songs through the house this week, it's been very telling to think and to discover how these philosophies of what life is about actually get played out in the day-to-day lives of individuals. And this is the major question that we tackle as we walk through the book of Ecclesiastes for the next several months. All said and done, what does it really matter? What's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of it all? Are we really just dust blowing around in the wind? Does the week just end and begin and we all just do it the same way with no real purpose at all? Why are we here? And many simply conclude, we only live once, so why not just eat, drink, and be merry? For he who dies with the most toys wins. So Ecclesiastes is incredibly important in our day. In a materialistic, hedonistic culture, seeking to find purpose, seeking to find meaning, seeking to find joy in everything. Well, everything that is except for reality. Herman Melville, the author author of the book Moby Dick, he said, Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. Ecclesiastes does not sugarcoat reality in existence. The reality of our hearts, the questions of our hearts, the longings of our hearts, our pursuits, our failures, all of these will be tackled with 
very frank words and reflection. So let's jump right into verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. So preacher here is the Hebrew word koheleth, which is a public teacher or a speaker before a gathered assembly. So it's a preacher or a teacher or a pundit. Hence the name of the book, Ecclesiastes, the Ecclesia, the Ecclesia, the gathering of God's people. And so this is the one who is speaking to the gathered people. Son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, I don't want to get into all of the silly disagreements about who wrote this book because it seems quite clear that the author of Ecclesiastes is the son of David, Solomon. Solomon, the son of David, who inherited the throne as the king of Jerusalem. Now, it's important to understand something of Solomon's life to understand the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember, Solomon was given great wisdom from God. But you see through the scriptures that he lived much of his life in great sin and rebellion against God. And as the king of Jerusalem, he led the nation into sin and rebellion as well. So let's get just a brief look at this man, Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verses 1 through 10. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughters of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, and the Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn, you, turn away your heart from their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. He had about a thousand women running around his house. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offering and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning these things that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. And to follow were horrible consequences for Solomon, horrible consequences for Israel. We see essentially that Solomon worshipped every false god that was present in his culture except for the one true and living God who in fact appeared to and spoke to him. So the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon in his old age. 
Now, if you read about Solomon's life throughout the Bible, you will realize that he was given more wisdom, more power, more fame, more money, more women. He had more parties. He had more education than you and I will ever, 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 ever have in this life combined. So in his old age, he's looking back over this life of hedonism, over his life of indulgence in every possible way that you can imagine. And he evaluates it for us to see. And in a heart of repentance, he points us to a better way. The only way of true, lasting meaning and satisfaction. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Meaningless. Vapor. It's fleeing. Life is meaningless. Wait a second. Didn't I just say Solomon will show us a greater way? To show us meaning and joy and satisfaction? Now he says all of life is meaningless. It's vanity. Well, he will show us a better way, but it's going to take time to get there first. For 12 chapters, he's going to give us an exposition of verse 2. Everything is meaningless. All is vanity. Let me show you what I mean is where he is headed with this. So 36 times in 12 chapters, he uses this word, vanity. Meaninglessness. Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So here he introduces a common refrain throughout the book. Under the sun. We will see some 25 times throughout Ecclesiastes that he's going to say under the sun. And so essentially he's talking about the world. Everything that happens in the world to include fallen mankind. So life under the sun is what you see is what you get. Nothing more and sometimes a whole lot less. So why is life vanity? Why is all of life meaningless? Because, as our modern philosopher told us, the week ends, the week begins. Rinse, repeat, and then we die. So 7 a.m., we wake up, start the coffee, take a shower, have some breakfast, get in the car, drive to work, sit in your cubicle, drink some more coffee, look at the computer screen, push a few papers around, go to lunch, go back to your cubicle, do a little more work, get in the car, pick up dinner on the way home, go home, kiss your family, go to bed. 7 a.m., the alarm goes off again, and we start all over. And then what? We die. The world continues on, but we die. So whether I work 20 hours a day, six days a week, or sleep 12 hours a day and collect unemployment, in the end, I gain the same exact thing as you. Death. We die. And so he says in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
He goes on, verse 7, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So the sun goes up and the sun goes down over and over and over and over again. The wind blows and blows and blows and blows and streams flow and flow and flow and flow. The ocean does not fill. So streams continue to flow over and over and over and over. Do you get it? You see what he's saying here? Such is life, right? When do you stop cooking meals? When do you stop doing laundry? When do you stop paying the bills and mowing the grass and getting your hair cut? Well, okay, maybe some of you the haircut, but... When does it stop? When do we stop going to the mailbox and finding things that need to be paid? Oh, Georgia Power, I just paid you $300 like 15 days ago and now you want $400. Listen, the train is on the track. The engine is running, but we can't get off. And every once in a while, we look look out the window and we realize we never actually left the train station. The view is the same, even though they keep shoveling coal into the engine. The week ends. The week begins. My life, dust in the wind. I die. So what's the result? Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Uh, Recently on YouTube, I saw an old commercial for the TRS-80 Model 100. It's the affordable, transportable cellular telephone by Radio Shack in 1983. Now, by affordable, they mean $300, and by transportable, they mean about a 75-pound suitcase. By cellular, they mean you rarely have a connection and you need access codes to dial different zip codes, all with a battery life of about 10 minutes attached to a phone cord talking at $1.50 a minute. That's what they mean by all of that. But in 1983, this was pretty cool stuff. Then what? It got better and better and lighter and smaller and cheaper. They worked better. And now pay phones are pretty much gone. Cell phones move from being a luxury to being a necessity. And after about nine months, it becomes a piece of junk that needs to be replaced. Even though when you got it, it was the greatest, hottest, fastest, most amazing piece of technology to ever exist on the face of the planet. And so our wants quickly turn into needs. And we jump on the treadmill of cell phone technology and have literally had them become a part of us. 
So if I can establish contact with you within a three-minute time span, because I know that you get your phone calls and your text messages and your emails all in the same place, and if I can't get you there, I will send you a Facebook message, and that's coming through as well. If I don't hear back from you in a half hour, something is horribly amiss. This is one example, but this one is very telling, right? And we would think with all of this communication that the result is better relationships and stronger marriages and more obedient children and greater commitments to the things of God, right? Well, not quite. In fact, it's brought an entirely new dimension of problems in community and difficulties to make sense of up and down. I will tell you, in my experience, I've had very, very few counseling sessions now that don't involve what someone wrote in an email or a text message or on Facebook. The latest teenage fad is called sexting. Pornographic images are regularly transferred from one device to the next. And the great game of keeping up with the Joneses has gotten even greater because now I can log on to Facebook and see what my old elementary school classmates are up to so I can compare myself to them and make sure my image is just a little bit better. So we're constantly in this maze searching for that golden morsel of cheese, but every straightaway turns into a dead end. So we need to make another turn to get where I'm going. And so no matter what my eye sees or my ear hears, there is no satisfaction. At the height of rampant drug use and the sexual revolution in America in 1965, the Rolling Stones very poignantly addressed this reality that no matter how much they smoked, no matter how much they ingested or shot up or snorted, no matter how much sex they had with various partners, the reality in the end was I can't get no satisfaction. Temporary is the satisfaction under the sun. We are never fulfilled. And so what has been is what will be, and what has done is what will be done. This is verse 9. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. You remember when the iPad first came out? All the Apple nerds were spending like $1,000 to get the tablet that I think they were assured was actually the tablet that God touched with his finger, like the tablets of stone that Moses had. They were a shadow of that which was to come in the iPad. That's how they treated it, right? Then what? iPad 2! And almost instantly, those iPad 1 pieces of junk started showing up on eBay because we wouldn't possibly want to be stuck with yesterday's garbage. Now, look, are those things cool? Yeah, very. Is it sinful to have one? No, not at all. Although I wonder why their logo is a piece of fruit with a bite taken out of it. I don't know. 
(laughs) I'm kidding. Listen, here's the point. Trinkets and gadgets and gizmos will always be trinkets and gadgets and gizmos. They're not sinful. They're just not new. They won't change your life. Today's iPad 2 is tomorrow's TRS-80 Model 100 from Radio Shack. Add it to the heap because eventually it will become humdrum commonplace and be forgotten altogether. It's like those toys parents duke it out for in Walmart on Black Friday that end up under the bed on January 1st because they're not so cool anymore. So the past becomes irrelevant, it gets forgotten, and guess what? That includes you. Eventually, you too will be forgotten. All your labor, all your hard work, all your accumulations, forgotten. Feeling good? (laughs) All right, let's go. Verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now we see a shift in Solomon writing now in the first person. So it's no longer this, that, they, and them. He's going to be saying me, my, I. I made my life all about seeking and searching and finding. The first thing he addresses in Ecclesiastes is wisdom and knowledge. He wanted to know all that was under the sun. This was my life to take it all in. Every bit of it. We see some of this in 1 Kings in chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, a 100 sheep besides deers, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates to the Tiphash to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table. Each one in his month, they let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds. They brought to the place where it was required each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. 
For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezahite, and Hermon, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard all of the wisdom. So he's speaking as a man who is wiser than any of us will ever be. God granted him that wisdom. So he's the wisest, richest, most powerful, most famous man in all of Israel's history up to that point. And so if it could be tried, he tried it in excess. If it could be known, he sought to know it. I wanted to know all that could be known under the sun. And oh, what a wearisome task. Why? Why was this such an unhappy business for Solomon? Well, because he realized the more you know, the more you know there's so much you don't know. This idea, of course, is very much a part of modern philosophy. We lack, we suffer, we have limited joy because we don't have enough knowledge. We just need to know more. So Solomon thought, as our political pundits so often claim, we need more education. That's the key. Now, indeed, education is a worthy pursuit, but education as a pursuit to find meaning in life is very simply a vain striving after the wind. And again, we need look no further than our own culture to see whether or not that's true. There are more educational opportunities in the West now than ever there was anywhere else in world history. Are we any closer to cracking the code of life's meaning through academic pursuits? See, Solomon thought knowledge was the answer, and yet he quickly found that education itself is no more than a means of information gathering. It has no power to transform life and purify The soul, this is where he's at in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Go ahead, educate yourself to death. In the end, you will find what is crooked will remain crooked, and what is not cannot be. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I was the wisest, smartest man to have ever lived. My heart knew wisdom. My heart is full of knowledge. Verse 17, and I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. So he's saying, oh... Just so you don't think my knowledge only consists of life in the ivory tower. I also gave myself to madness and folly. And guess what? It's just like trying to catch wind in a jar. So Solomon knew what it was to live life as high as one could be. And as low as low gets. And he took it all in. 
And you can ask Solomon, which one's greater? Which is better? His response, eh, all of it is vanity. Now, it's interesting because no matter who we are, no matter what our socioeconomic status, no matter what's going on in our lives, we all seem to have that perspective that says, if only. We all have that if only mindset, right? So the poor say, if only I had more money and didn't have to worry about paying bills each month and buying what I need and what my kids want in life, everything would be so much greater. If only I had that. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, the rich say, if only life was simpler and I didn't have to worry about juggling so much and life could slow down, life could smooth out. Life would be so much greater, if only. So these two groups of people often look at each other and say, oh man, if only I could be where they're at, life would be so much simpler and so much greater. And Solomon's saying, I've had it all. And I've had nothing. And it's all the same. Meaningless. So the wisdom, the knowledge that Solomon thought would bring about great happiness and meaning in his life produced what? Verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. His soul sought happiness in everything the world provides, in all that he could know, but he sought it in vain. It wasn't happiness that he gained. It was sorrow. It was sorrow. So how does all this tension resolve? Well, Solomon doesn't really get to it until the last chapter. But I'm going to remind you of it each and every week as we walk through Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the commentary on the heart of modern man. Solomon utterly destroys the notion that anything that this world offers is able to bring satisfaction and meaning to our lives. Listen, here's the point to all of this. The silly round and round and round of daily life on this merry-go-round called earth is completely empty and meaningless apart from God. John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, he's speaking to the woman at the wheel, well, everyone who drinks of this, speaking of physical water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So to drink and thirst again is the disappointment of the world. But to drink and never thirst is the portion of the gospel. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Listen, you may be walking and breathing with a beating heart, but apart from Christ, the entire scope of your life is vanity. And here's the thing. You know it. You absolutely know it. You know your pursuit of wealth and knowledge and fame and sex and success and possessions. You know it's all an exercise in futility because you're still working hard to get the wind in a jar. 
It won't happen. Indeed, this life apart from Christ, where we are, if you are not united to Christ, you surely can't get no satisfaction. Or to quote again a modern philosopher, Dave Matthews, Oh, look at me in my fancy car and my bank account. Oh, how I wish I could take it all down into my grave. God knows I'd save and save. Man, take a look again. Take a look again. Things you have collected, well, in the end, piles up to one big nothing. One big nothing at all. And when life is lived, separated from Christ, he's right. It's one big nothing at all. But in Christ... All of a sudden, the vanity of life has meaning. The constant striving has purpose. The train finally leaves the station and goes somewhere because life is no longer about me. Life is now about the glory of God and working onto Him and not myself and not to other men. So life's meaning is found in glorifying and enjoying. Not me and not my things and not you, but God. Enjoying God. How? Well, we follow Solomon's lead. Evaluate our lives. See that it's vanity. Repent. And flee to the cross. Listen, we can't clean ourselves up. And we don't come here because we're going to clean ourselves up. We go to the cross to be cleaned up. We can't do it, but He surely will. God the Father made Christ the Son to be sin. He who knew no sin, that we would become the righteousness of God. Christ bore the wrath of the Father on our behalf and granted us his righteousness. So that as we look at the vanity of day-to-day life, we can look to Christ and say, it won't all be swept away. In Christ, my life's not meaningless. My life is not dust in the wind. In Christ, I can have abundant life, eternal satisfaction from which I will never thirst again. That's the point of all of this. But in order to get there, we must take inventory of our lives, realize the vanity of our pursuits and the things we're putting hope in that are other than Christ. Repent and run to Christ. Cling to Christ. We must quit chasing the wind. Let's pray together. Father, we so thank you. We so thank you that you have opened our eyes to see Christ, that we could have life abundant. 
I pray, God, that you help each and every one of us to evaluate our lives. To not put our hope in the things of this world. To not put our hope in more money or greater simplicity or possessions or success or jobs in our hobbies, or even in our relationships. Because each and every one of these things will be swept away and will prove to be vain, meaningless pursuits in the end, apart from Christ. But God, we pray that you would help each of us to see that great purpose, the great meaning of life, is found in glorifying and enjoying you. Lord, help us to understand that sin is not found in seeking joy. For indeed, the greatest joy is found in Christ. Great sin is found in seeking joy in anything other than Christ. Help us to delight ourselves in the Lord that we might receive the desires of our heart. And the desire of each and every one of our hearts is the same, to be satisfied. Help us, God, to cast away the vain satisfactions that fail in this life and cling fully to the cross of Christ. Help us to find meaning in each and every day, in the chores we do, in the cycle we run through, that that meaning is found in loving and enjoying Christ. Lord, we love you and thank you for awakening us to the reality of Christ. For those who do not know Jesus, I pray, God, that you would bring great conviction in their lives. That you would give them the gift of repentance and faith. And by your grace and for your glory, that you would draw them onto yourself and give them eyes to see the vanity of this life, ears to hear the truth of the gospel, and hearts to understand that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, was dead and buried for three days and rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning forever and ever. Grant new life in Christ for your sake, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.